Hello, my name is Adrian Yent from the CPFT communications team, and this is the third in a series of podcasts about research and insights at Cambridgeshire and Peterborough NHS Foundation Trust. Today we are talking about electronic patient databases and how they can be used to support more research and create more opportunities for patients to join research studies. My guest today is psychiatrist Dr. Rudolf Cardinal. Dr. Cardinal is an honorary consultant in general adult liaison psychiatry. He is also a university lecturer at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge. Hello Rudolf and thank you for joining me today. Hi Adrian, it's nice to be here. Rudolf, uh, firstly, can I ask you what is research using patient data and what are the examples of how it has benefited the health of the nation generally? Sure. I guess when we talk about patient data, we can think about it in two ways. And one is the individual level. So if, you know, Mr X is referred to our team, uh, let's say at Addenbrooke's, we'd read the notes and then we go and check, let's say, blood tests about that patient. We go and see and talk to the patient and we might do things, we might alter medications and we would write in the notes about what we've found and what we uh, suggest. Um, So that is patient data about an individual. But when we're talking about research using data, we're normally talking about bulk data, so data about lots of patients at the same time. So, for example, we might ask questions like, is depression harder to treat if someone has inflammation in their body? Uh, We might ask what treatments are most effective for a given illness or how common is a particular side effect across all patients who receive a particular medication. And for those, you might need to look at hundreds or thousands or or many more uh, records. So in general, we're talking about research using bulk data, if you like, and generally using anonymized or de-identified data. Because when you're asking about hundreds of thousands of people, you don't need to know who anyone is. Um, What you need to know is what's happening on on average. Um, And I suppose... There are many examples across medicine where large data sets have been used to provide important information, but a couple that are uh, striking in psychiatry. So, for example, there was a very famous study in the 1980s about uh, the relationship or the potential relationship between cannabis and schizophrenia. And that was a study using uh, large uh, data sets in Sweden. And what they have there is a system where everybody has a national identity number. So they can do things, uh, and what they did was to look at everyone who had been asked questions about cannabis use when they were conscripted into military service aged about 18. But then they could link those to admission records from psychiatric hospitals many years later and say, well, who went on to develop particular illnesses? And that was a study involving about 50,000 people that showed quite clearly a relationship between how much cannabis you've used aged 18 and your subsequent chance of developing schizophrenia. And that was a very important piece of evidence that has fed into the debate about uh, and the role of, of cannabis in, in psychotic illnesses in general. And there have been many others. I mean, for example, a, um, a recent study in, in a London data set looking at the effects of uh, drugs for treating the memory symptoms of dementia. Are they equally important in mild dementia and severe dementia? For example, you can ask these things about big uh, of big data sets and, and provide important insights from those. So the, the what information you gather and how you gather information is re- is really important as you say in the example of the swedish study they because everybody had a national identity number they were able to track it yeah that's right and i think you know in the uk we're um we're a fairly privacy focused nation for example in, in comparison to some of these systems in in scandinavia and 
we do have a national number for the NHS. So that's very helpful. So in principle, one can look across different parts of the NHS using that number to link people. Um, it's much harder to link outside health data and look at other things, uh, social care, for example, or, or education, and that sort of thing. Um, but And then even within the NHS, because the NHS is operates as lots of different NHS trusts, um, they each are responsible for their own data. And so sometimes we have difficulties asking questions that cross those kind of NHS boundaries. Um, so that's one of the problems that we sort of try to address, or are trying to address. So this is where we come on to perhaps what you're doing or you have done in terms of trying to circumvent that or find solutions to that. So we we briefly introduced this as talking about electronic patient databases. So firstly, what is it, electronic, electronic patient database and, and how does it differ from an electronic medical record system, for example? Sure. I mean, in a, in a technical sense, all these things are databases. Whenever you've got computers collecting information, they're generally in the form of databases. But uh, what we really mean by this is that we have electronic record systems where individual clinicians see the records of individual patients. And then we try to use that information to make research databases where um, people are de-identified and patient records are de-identified. But we can ask questions about lots of patients simultaneously. Um, and when we're doing that, we have some pieces of information that have uh, if you like, electronic structure, so records of diagnoses and uh, for some databases records of medication or blood tests and that sort of thing. But in psychiatry, lots of the information is recorded in what we call free text. So a clinician goes and sees a patient and types in English sentences. Now that's much harder for computers to work with. Uh, and so we have uh, applied sort of techniques to try and extract information from that free text, but also try to um, scrub the identifying information from those letters or documents. So if you've said in the letter, oh, I've seen Mr Smith today and he's more depressed, uh, the research database can take that uh, data and get rid of the name or get rid of dates of birth or get rid of telephone numbers or addresses or anything that might identify the patient. But you're still left with information that tells you, you know, how they're doing, how that patient is. And there are computer techniques to take those pieces of text and to look at the grammar and the structure and the words and find things in that. So for example, it's relatively easy to find uh, mentions of medication because they have unusual names, they're not common English words and you can easily find them. But also people are developing uh, ways of reading the English, if you like, and asking the question, of, well, was this patient feeling low in mood or not? And you can ask those questions electronically and generate more structure uh, from the database. And that de-identified structured database is what we're talking about. That sounds really quite clever. And I, I wonder whether there's a sort of a link to AI, artificial intelligence. But um, can we just go back to say what, why you decided to develop this bespoke software and, and you know, how does it work, really? <laughs> sure, yeah. So, I mean, we, we started this, and, and we weren't the innovators here, but um, uh, colleagues from King's College London and the South London Maudsley NHS Trust um, pioneered this in the UK, taking uh, mental health records and de-identifying them for research. And we've partnered with them, and um, we've done some work, and quite a lot of work, where uh, data from CPFT has gone securely to the a sort of CPFT zone of uh, the London Trust where they've done the de-identifying for us using their software and then we've sort of accessed it from, from CPFT. So it's been restricted to CPFT 
staff, but uh, other people have uh, done some of the technical uh, support and, and work for us and the research uh, collaboration has uh, been based on that as well. But we've also uh, been trying more recently to, to collect all of CPFT's data together uh, in what we've called the, the data warehouse. So Jonathan Artingstall and colleague, uh, colleagues in CPFT uh, run that. And the idea is that because we have lots of companies that provide software for us, so we've got lots of different record systems, lots of different companies run those uh, for the NHS, that if we can bring those things into one place and then de-identify them together, we can get more value from that and it simplifies things for some other technical reasons. And also we're keen to make innovations to this software. So we can say, for example, that as an individual clinician, would you gain from using the research database to find out questions about your patients in a way that you might not be able to using the front-end clinical system? So that that kind of communication or that feedback is really important for innovation, isn't it? So sort of maybe a virtuous circle, is that right? Yeah, well, I mean, we'd like to, to think so. For example, um, you know, it's happened several times that people have come to me and said it would be useful if we could do this kind of search on our patients and the front-end system won't let us. And we're trying to take those ideas and put them directly into the um, into the, the research system to try and bring value beyond just the research, if you like. But So we always uh, argue that research has got strong benefits in the long run for clinical care, but we'd like it to also have benefits in the short term. So if you could improve the care now for your patient using tools that we've developed, then we think that's a good thing and we try to uh, contribute to that. And how did you, I'm sure you had some challenges uh, along the way, such as sort of um, integrating with these different systems. Uh, How did you go about overcoming them and finding finding ways to, um, you know, have a, a very robust system well, it's, um, I mean, it's a, as you can imagine, it's a reasonably complicated process. And, and what we're trying to do, essentially, is that we're trying to get all the text out of these clinical records, find all the identifying information, dates, birth, addresses, names, that sort of thing, and build what I call a scrubber, uh, so a software scrubber that knows about names and addresses. And then you use that to scrub uh, the patient's record, so you're left with a de-identified version. And then there are some other things... Um, that you have to be very careful of. So one thing we're keen to do is to use these databases to support uh, patient contact research, where where you're meeting people face-to-face to to do research studies. And if you ever want to do that, and we are doing that, you need to be able to use the database in a de-identified way, but in principle to be able to go back to a patient to re-identify them. And that needs secrets, there are secrets built into the database and you have to keep those secrets closely guarded and that involves the use of cryptographic techniques so for example if we start with an NHS number we might want some version of the NHS number so we can use that with permission of patients to re-identify them but in no way do we want the researchers to be able to know that patient's identity if they've not got permission Uh, and one of the key lessons when you're writing software and one of the key maxims is that you never write your own cryptography because cryptography is horrendously complicated and the way to do it is to find the best in the world and use other people's ideas and I guess that's that's the spirit in in which we've developed that software we've we've taken techniques from published and successful methods and are trying to apply them to to our problems and and what's it actually called the system uh we call it crate which is uh, stands for clinical records um 
uh, anonymization and text extraction. Uh, you think of an acronym and then... Uh, but it's a big box backwards. of data, which a, is... Yeah. Basically, you can, you can de-identify and uh, scrub and... Uh, utilize it to uh, encourage research that's right and you, you can take any database um, you, you tell it where the identifiers live uh, and then it will take them all out and provide you with tools to access the data for research and that's another area where, we, where we'd like to make improvements because we recognize that uh, a lot of people have questions they want to ask of their own clinical services data for example but it takes a bit of computing skill to do that sometimes and we provide people to try and help with that. So, for example, Jonathan Lewis, our research database manager, supports researchers and clinicians to ask questions of the data, providing his computing expertise. But we're also trying to develop ways to make it that bit easier for people who don't have much computing experience to ask these kind of questions about their own service. Are there any examples that you can think of where, you know, you've helped um, teams or... Um, I mean, you mentioned depression and inflammation earlier on. Um, maybe talk a bit more about that or anything, any other examples? From the research side. Yeah. So, um, well, there have been a number of uh, studies that have, have come out. We're, we're relatively new to this, uh, this area. But, for example, we've looked at the relationship between uh, different treatments for schizophrenia and how long people with schizophrenia spend in hospital. Uh, and obviously everyone's keen that that's as short as is possible, that people get better and, and go home earlier or don't need to come into hospital in the first place. And one can look at the relationship between different medications and time spent in hospital and, and provide some suggestions there that um, uh, might be useful for, for clinical care. Although in that context, I'd always say that data that comes out of these databases, it's not the same as doing a trial where you randomise people you uh, flip a coin and assign them to treatment A or treatment B and see which is better. That's the best way of doing it. But you can get hints from these kind of, of databases. And um, you mentioned depression and inflammation. We're uh, looking at that at the moment, uh, trying to identify people who have difficult to treat depression and ask the question, does that relate to uh, differences in inflammation in the body? And uh, colleagues in the university have already done studies using data from elsewhere in the NHS. For example, showing, uh, Gerlam Kandigar and colleagues have shown that if, as a child, you have high levels of inflammation, that increases your risk of depression in adulthood. So there do seem to be links there, and, and a question is how important they are and how can we help to treat depression by knowing these things about inflammation as well. And we've looked at, you know, across the lifespan, so for example, um, in older adults, we've looked at diseases like Lewy body dementia. So Lewy body dementia, um, I know you interviewed John O'Brien about this uh, not long ago, so it's a, a condition in which people develop memory impairment but also sometimes hallucinations and other such symptoms and sometimes uh, features that look like Parkinson's disease as well. It's a related condition and we've together looked at um, the impact of that on survival and how long people live with these diseases and it turns out that compared to other dementias, such as uh, Alzheimer's disease, uh, Lewy body dementia is, is associated with shorter life expectancy, even when you control for things like age and sex and other physical illnesses. So we're, we're exploring that further and trying to, uh, to learn a bit more about why. Just going back a, a bit to talk about Crate, um, it, it's an open source software. Um, what, um, why is it open source and are, are there any risks or, you know, 
opportunities by using open source. I mean, it's free, mm. so <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a good thing. Um, can you talk a bit, a bit about that? Well, yes, I'm I'm a firm believer in the open source uh, movement. If you like, uh, I think that particularly where people are trying to innovate at a fast rate, the open source method is is great for that. There are obviously plenty of pieces of commercial software that, are, that we use all over the NHS that are not open source and they do a great job. But when we're trying to make regular changes and to improve things as fast as we can, it's, it's very helpful to be able to operate in an open source way. I mean, you asked about other risks. I mean, there are some. So I suppose one is that until it's reached a, a sort of international critical mass, it's a bit vulnerable to yeah, you know, people like me getting run under, run over by buses, and you know, if if we lose enough people from the project, then that might be a, a risk. But in terms of the actual software, I think the open source uh, model is is really good because it's been shown time and time again that having more eyes on software, more people looking at it, uh, that's a good way of finding any problems. And um, we've had that already. You know, we made it make it publicly available, and then you get comments coming from around the world saying, well, I tried it on this other database uh, technical system. It doesn't seem to work quite so well. Can you fix it? And we fix it. And uh, so it gets better in, in that sort of way. Um, and I think also in terms of the this core thing about keeping data private, um, I think this the idea that you let everyone know which cryptographic methods you're using, that sort of security methods, so that people can criticise it if you've done it wrong and so it gets better, that's very important. And the other way used to be called security through obscurity, where you hope that uh, you know it works and, and you keep it secret. In general, it's been shown that being transparent about how you write your security software or your cryptography software is a good way of making sure that it actually does what you think it does, because other people will tend to find problems. So it, it sounds pretty secure. Uh, is that is that right? Well, we, we hope so. Although uh, I think that the security of these systems really comes not just from having good software, but the way that you use it in the trust. So I think that the most important thing is that we're not just taking NHS records and then de-identifying them and then making them available to the world. That's the opposite of what we're doing. So we're taking NHS records. People can opt out from that. Uh, and for those that don't opt out, we, we take the data, we de-identify it, and then we make it available to researchers within the CPFT NHS environment. So it stays there, it stays in a secure computing environment within the NHS. Um, and the people who get access to that are CPFT researchers or CPFT-affiliated researchers who are approved to do specific work for specific projects that we think have, have potential benefit to health. And there's oversight of that. So there's an audit system where we can see what everyone's doing from the research side. Um, and that oversight includes CPFT service users and carers. And um, ultimately, the trust, like all trusts, has a, a Caldecott guardian. So this is Dr. Denman, the medical director, who's responsible for um, safeguarding patients' interests when it comes to data. And our database reports ultimately to uh, to her and, and her team, so that we're we're very keen that the information governance is is robust and that this is managed in a secure way. And it's that non-technical aspect that is probably the most important in these systems. Some studies, um, if they're to be successful, going back to the point about um, you know the the the, the data, the date of birth, etc. But some studies will need that more detailed information. Um, 
in order to be successful successful is there a way around that or to protect you know patient confidentiality well i think often that level of detail isn't as necessary as it might first seem so for example you often need to know how old people are but that doesn't mean that you need their date of birth exactly so what we do for example is we blur the dates of birth to the first of the month so you might say you're born in april 1980 or whatever it is rather than the exact date um and that gives you a good idea of how old someone is without that much more identifying piece of information of the precise date of birth and similarly when I mean, postcodes are quite identifying they're often quite small geographical areas and so we don't let postcodes go through but we have a sort of blurred version of it that tells you you know more roughly where in the country someone lives which is important to know for example whether you come from a more affluent or a more deprived area we have national information on that that's an important uh, thing to be aware of but to do that you only need a, a more uh, fuzzy geographical location so that's one aspect but then the other is that if you as a researcher want more detail about individual patients well sometimes the best thing to do is just ask and uh, there are plenty of studies where it's critical that the researchers and the patients meet and that might be because you want to do something new, a new brain scan, for example, or a new blood test. Uh, you might want to test a new treatment or you just might want to ask questions in more detail. And to do that, um, as with any uh, NHS-based studies, you, you need ethical approval for those kind of studies, as we have for the database. Um, and you need permission, consent from the patient involved. And what we've tried to do in the research database is to support that sort of study as well. So the NHS constitution promises that we will, as the NHS, anonymise data and use it for research, but also that we will tell people about studies that they could potentially participate in. And the way that this works in the CPFT research database is that as a researcher you can find people in an anonymous way. So you might say, I would like people who are aged between 18 and 35 who have depression, who have had drug X but not drug Y, that sort of thing. And then you might say, right, I found them, but I don't know who they are. Please may I meet them. And then you would send their research codes, if you like, uh, to the electronic system and say, I'd like to meet them. And then they might have said no, and that's where that request would end. But they might have said yes, in which case they may have given you permission to see their name and address and all their other details and to contact them to write to them about the study. Or they might have said, I don't know yet, ask my clinician. Or they might never have been asked. And in those circumstances, the database can re-identify the, the patient and ask the clinician to ask the patient. And it's a well-established principle in the NHS that it's okay for clinicians to ask patients that they know, are you interested in this study? And so these provide ways in which researchers can find people, sometimes using quite complicated criteria, and then meet them if they consent. And if they consent, then all this detail is available to the researchers. And if they don't, then it isn't. So it's really important, actually, isn't it, that um, staff, medical staff, clinicians, healthcare workers, if they're, you know, working with patients, they're caring for patients, that they could raise the um, raise the question, just ask the question, would you like to be involved in research? Because that will benefit research. Absolutely, yes. And we've recently been building those questions into the clinical front-end systems so when you're sitting there with a patient you can see that form and if they say yes or no you can put that straight into the, the systems and then that'll feed through to the database. So 
what now? What are you what are you working on at the moment? Well, a number of things. So, um, for example, I mentioned this problem about the different pools of data within the NHS. And one thing that we found by looking at CPFT data is that we found that people who have schizophrenia have come to CPFT. Their life expectancy is much shorter than other people who have come to CPFT. And that's true across the UK. It's a major public health problem. But uh, knowing that doesn't mean that we can predict it in individuals, and we would like to be able to do that better. And we suspect from hints in our data that and from other studies that have shown this elsewhere in the UK, that lots of that uh, early mortality is due to physical problems, diabetes, for example. And we know that most of the information about people's diabetes care sits in general practice or in uh, acute hospitals rather than in CPFT, which is a community and mental health service provider. So we would like to be able to link that sort of information a bit more broadly. Um, across Cambridgeshire uh, and there is also information that is held in national data sets so for example uh, all causes of death on death certificates are kept in a confidential way by the Office of National Statistics so we are, would like to seek permission to link some of these data sets between hospitals and uh, between uh, and national data sets and then try to ask the question well can we predict things that uh, indicate risks to people's lives, uh, such as diabetes is an obvious one, but but there may be other ones that we're, we're less aware of. And um, you mentioned the artificial intelligence uh, similarity earlier. I mean, I guess that's this is the sort of area where these kind of techniques might be really useful, because when you're asking questions about thousands of people, uh, we have techniques for predicting you know, stuff from other stuff, if you like. But sometimes humans are not great at spotting those patterns or even of thinking of the patterns. And there are techniques to have machines do the learning, machine learning or artificial intelligence techniques that might be better at predicting some of these important things like risk factors for individual patients. So we would like to, to develop that a bit as well. Um, we'd also, oh wait, we've got, we've got ongoing studies on some of the things that I've talked about. But we're also keen, as I said, to give clinicians better access to data about their patients or their services. Um, for example, it's uh, surprisingly difficult at the moment to say um, this patient has been with CPFT for many years. Going back some years, did they ever have drug X? Um, that is quite hard using the front-end systems, but should be much easier using a research database. So we're trying to build in a, a sort of clinical interface to that database so that clinicians can ask that question directly about their patients but also maybe about their service so you know what's happening on average to people who my teams are seeing um, and then I also mentioned that the fact that from a research point of view it's great that we have lots of this data coming through but much of it remains in the form of free text people writing in sentences and uh, we're trying to develop software systems to help in the clinic for example if you need a memory test we think we can do that in an electronic way that saves people doing lots of mental arithmetic and is a bit more uh, speedy um, and also as a side effect produces structured data for research and so we're trying to do things to bring those kind of software tools right to the clinical front line and, and help out in the in the clinics and, perhaps uh, an app well. exactly exactly yeah, basically yeah. yeah so you kind of referred to this i was going to ask about par partnerships obviously 
in terms of work going forward is, is incredibly important, building those partnerships, new partnerships, also the partnerships you already have with um, you know, University of Cambridge and Adam Brooks and the Cute Trusts. So those partnerships are really important, aren't they? Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I think um, I mean, that's a particular a trio that's uh, close to my heart because I work for all three of those organisations. But I mean, many of our research tools are developed in the university. We've got great expertise there that we can draw on. Um, the clinical data obviously comes from the NHS, but the NHS isn't one thing. It's uh, lots of different trusts. So, um, you know, if you have severe depression, you know, CPFT might be looking after you from that perspective, but your blood tests might be going via Peterborough City Hospital or Edinburgh Hospital, for example. And so if we need to, to bring those things together, we have to be able to build partnerships there. And then partnerships with um, other research uh, groups around the, around the country. And uh, For example, um, we're doing a lot of work with King's College London who have, have led lots of these anonymised mental health database uh, studies. And uh, you know, they can look at their data and we can look at our data and it's a way of checking whether something is consistent across different parts of the, the country with different uh, uh, sort of demographics and different um, uh, parts of the, of the UK see if things hold true in, in both cases. And we know that we, we sometimes struggle to get research data linked across different parts of the NHS, but it's also true in the in clinical practice. You know, if you're sitting there in one part of the NHS, it's sometimes easy to access data from other parts, and it's sometimes not so easy. And that's something that Cambridgeshire and Peterborough is very aware of, and we're trying to improve uh, the clinical access to data from all around the NHS as well. So those partnerships are, are critical for that. So looking ahead, say... 10, 20 years, you know, what, what, what do you envisage the future of research using, uh, you know, electronic patient databases, uh, more AI, perhaps, as you've referred to? Um, I, I think that may be part of it, but I think the most important thing is just better access to data for, in a safe way. And I think lots of people will be aware of uh, national programmes that have gone wrong, the most famous being the care.data project where uh, data was moved around the country and there was a, a backlash against that about the way it was being managed and I mean I, I guess I I sit on both sides of the fence maybe here and I'm, I'm acutely aware of the importance of research using NHS data but also of the importance of protecting the data of, of patients and I think uh, that as a country I think it would it would help to um, have more awareness of the importance of, of data for research. It is vitally important. I've just touched on a few areas, but it's it's used uh, in many aspects of medicine. And I think it would probably be helpful if we had a single mechanism where people can see what's happening to their NHS data. For example, I might want to say, I'm happy for all of my NHS data to be used for research or a subset of it. Or I might say, I'm happy for it to be used by NHS research and commercial companies or NHS research, but not commercial companies, these kinds of distinctions that people might want to make. And if there was a national way of saying that, then maybe people would have a better sense of where their data was going uh, in an anonymised and safe way. And maybe that would support doing more with the data and make it a bit easier to link between um, different parts of the NHS. Because I think it's also true that many patients are surprised how difficult it is to access data from different parts of the NHS and often that doesn't make sense from a clinical care perspective so we have to improve that but be very transparent about where the data is going 
what it looks like to the person who's seeing it. And often it's completely unidentifiable who the data is from. Um, and the fact that it's being used to develop new understanding to try and benefit clinical care. That's absolutely fascinating, Rulog. Uh, thank you for taking the time today. So if you'd like to know more, or if you'd like to just follow developments about research and development at Cambridgeshire and Peterborough NHS Foundation Trust, then you can follow us on Twitter, cpft underscore research. And uh, thank you, Rudolf. Adrian, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.